Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and... 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey everybody, I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram and I just want to let you guys know in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera. I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan That's C-O-K-E and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. 
So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. I know I said last week that I was taking a week off, but I actually had some time today before this Bad Christian Conference gets started, and I have my gear with me, so I thought I would put this episode together since I'd already edited down the main conversation with Carolyn, and that's the real heavy lifting. Now, our topic today is patriarchy, mostly within the world of the Bible, but also in the modern world in ways that surprisingly mimic that ancient Near Eastern context. Now, this topic intersects with uh, a major conversation, a major hot issue in Christianity today, egalitarianism versus complementarianism. Egalitarianism is the view that before God, men and women are not only completely equal in status, but they are also equal in their ability to use their gifts in ministry of all kinds, including all the way up to being lead pastors, seminary professors, etc., There are different shades of the opposite view, complementarianism. Some of them allow for female deacons or female elders, teachers and professors, but no complementarian would allow for a female teaching pastor or a head pastor. And this is because they believe that the Bible teaches that men and women are equal in their status or their value before God, but that God has ordained different roles for men and women. Now, today's talk about patriarchy is not only about that discussion between egalitarianism and complementarianism, it's also about how to exegete or interpret the biblical text, and it's about current-day societal ills. Ultimately, our guest, Carolyn Custis James, is trying to answer the question for herself and for all Christian women, what does God expect of me? What am I called to be and do as a daughter of God? Carolyn has written a whole slew of books, and she describes herself as an author who thinks deeply about what it means to be a female follower of Jesus in a postmodern world. I love that description, and that's why I wanted to talk with her today. Carolyn is actually more theologically and biblically conservative than I am, something that I was actually surprised by in real time as we talked, which you'll hear. But in listening back to the conversation, I really love this difference between us. And to be clear, from the top, I don't disagree with her reading of the text. I actually find it powerful, and I think that it opens up so many biblical stories in a way that I really haven't encountered before. As you'll hear, though, I just go further than her, you might say. But let's get into it. Here is my conversation on patriarchy with Carolyn Custis James. Carolyn, what do we need to know about your personal story to understand your work around patriarchy and the Bible? It it has a lot to do with my story. I grew up in a pastor's home, and so I was raised on the Bible, raised in the church, 
bought into the church's message for me as a woman that I would find my true calling as a wife and mother, that that was what God created me for. That's what I saw in the women in the church. That's what I saw in my own family. The women in my family, they all were, that was the roadmap. And what happened to me was that when I graduated from college, I had a decade-long stretch of singleness. And in hindsight, I think everything came out of those 10 years because there wasn't a backup plan. (laughs) I didn't have a plan B, you know, it was, that's the plan. Everybody sort of thought that way too. And it was sort of like, you know, he'll come. (laughs) And instead it took me into a struggle with God and questions about, who am I as a, as a woman? And is this something I can miss what God has created me to be? Or can I, you know, the questions got bigger because then I started paying attention to other women and how their stories were playing out. And it pushed me uh, to start asking bigger questions. Is, is, is God's purpose for me as a woman something I can miss? Can I lose it? Can uh, somebody cheat me of it? Can I ruin it? Uh, what about little girls, you, you know, who never grow up to be adults? Did they just not ever have a purpose? And what about on the other side of the seasons of life that seem to be so important? Do we sort of, does it expire? I went back to Genesis 1 and 2. That's the only text that we have that's before the fall. So that's the vision. And that's where I went with my questions. And I wanted to know, is God's vision for his daughters universal? Can I draw something out of this text that I could tell any woman, any girl, no matter who they are, where they live in the world or in history, what they see when they look in the rearview mirror, you know, is this for all of us? God's calling for his daughters? Is it something that touches down in every single girl's life, every single woman's life from first breath to last breath? And what happened ultimately that led to a real close look at this subject of patriarchy is that as as I researched the question for women, men are in the stories, men are in the you know, we're, we're in this together and they face some of the same kinds of struggles. You know, what, what is, what does it mean to be a man? If you're supposed to provide for your family and then you get injured on the job, well, that part has been taken away. Yeah. Or you lose your job and your industry changes and you know, whatever, then is some part of you're not a man anymore right that's that's an interesting question we hear that you're not you're not a man you're not a man if you don't bring home the bacon if you don't lead your family if you aren't whatever a diagnosis a job loss a divorce um, just the realities of old age can threaten who you are well, so let's get into it. What is patriarchy? Like, what is what is not patriarchy that maybe people might think you're talking about when you say the patriarchal world? Well, I mean, pa- patriarchy touches down in every culture, so it's sort of it's permeated everything. Yeah. 
I would say what is not patriarchy is the kingdom of God. Mm. That he has a di- that he has a different vision for humanity than what we find in patriarchy or any other social system. But like, so, is, the, is like guys wanting to watch the Super Bowl is that patriarchy, or is that just not not necessarily? Right. But if you say all men have to, yeah, okay, you know, good. Well, that's good because so, I think that, that some women, people that women don't want to, <laughs> right? But people can get their hackles up maybe unnecessarily by a kind of a an over-prescribed definition of, of patriarchy where it's like, you know, well, really, if we want to fight the patriarchy, we should like not let our – we should like force our little boys to try playing with dolls and see if they – you know, there's like a kind of – there's a cultural really heavy-handedness that sometimes is connected with the word patriarchy. And I want to make sure that we understand what you're actually talking about when you talk about patriarchy. Patriarchy is a social system that um, the very word patriarchy means father rule. So it means the father rule. And it's a system that in its, in its ancient form and in some cultures still today um, privileges men over women. The form that it was in, in biblical times meant that, Sons were a priority, and daughters were going to go build another man's family. So you have, like in the the twelve sons of Jacob, when he blesses his children at the end of his life. You know, there's no mention of Dinah. You know, because mm. it's all about sons, and so there's a an urgency to produce sons. A woman's value is derived from men. Who is her father? Who is her husband? And how many sons has she produced? So basically, you gauge a woman's value by counting her sons. Mm. That, and, you know, women in the Bible who don't get pregnant are not begging God for daughters. They're begging God for sons. It's a, it's a culture where women don't have voice or agency or legal rights, any kind of legal rights. So that's that's the world of the of the culture and the quest for sons is a matter of urgency it, it is a an utter calamity for a man to die without a male heir it means right. he's been ex- extinguished patriarchy comes in many different forms there are benevolent patriarchs um you know my father would have bought into that way of seeing the world but you know he was a he was a wonderful father and a loving husband so it's not like evil in all the forms that it takes but it falls short of what Jesus came to do it, it falls short of the vision that God casts in the beginning and it falls short of the vision at the end that we see in Revelation at the marriage of the Lamb and the bride. It took me a long time to see that as an issue. And and I think, you know, when you talk about people getting irked when they hear somebody say, well, let's talk about patriarchy, that there are a lot of words that are raised where we, you know, raise our hackles. Yeah. And, and, it, and it keeps us from having a healthy, thoughtful discussion. I mean, we run into the same thing with feminism. There are lots of ways in which 
feminism benefits women every single day. If we have an education, if we can vote, if we have a credit card, you know, if we own property, all of those things come from battles that feminism, you know, the feminists fought. And some of the early feminists were Christian women and they were involved in the, um, anti-slavery movement so but like someone might listen to conservative talk radio and just whenever they hear the word feminist they're now trained to basically be anti-feminists because of the way rush limbaugh or sean hannity talks about feminists but like if you actually ask them would you prefer that women not vote or own property or have an ira or whatever they would they would go no i want them to have those things but well that's because of feminism right like there's there can be a the way that we use a term in our current culture war context at any given moment can be really divorced from talking about the biblical text, for instance, or talking about the historic political movement that started 50 years ago. Yeah, everything is everything is black and white. Even to raise a subject is suspect. And, yeah. you know, I've gotten frustrated with both of those things because I think we need, desperately need to have thoughtful conversations about those subjects. I mean, they're, they, they tear us apart. So, okay, we have an idea of what patriarchy is. Now, I want to ask you, you, you make this distinction in your teaching. What is the difference between saying the Bible teaches and promotes patriarchy, maybe a nice version of it, between that Mm -hmm. and between saying the cultural backdrop of the Bible is patriarchal in nature? What's the difference? It's a huge difference. If we say the Bible is teaching patriarchy, that this is God's design for us as human beings, then we're going to move in the direction of embracing it in how we interact with one another, how we structure life in the church, in the community, in our families. That's what we've done is we've said, okay, this is, this is, it's all through the Bible, you know, Genesis to Revelation, you run into patriarchy. It's a the culture in which the stories of the Bible are playing out is a patriarchal culture. When, what I've come to conclude is that, that that is the best culture to set off in the sharpest relief, the radical nature of the gospel. Interesting. You know, that makes me think of yeah. Greg Boyd, the theologian, who talks hmm. about, for instance, this is not, not quite the same um, – cultural and and Christian living application, but textually it's very similar. He talks about the violence in the Old Testament. And he basically uses the, the hermeneutic, the way of reading that text, as negative example. That essentially God is showing us what countries like the Israelites would have done, and then through the cross is saying, and you do opposite now kind of a thing. And and it's an important move, right? Because it it takes those stories of Israelite violence against the Canaanites, for instance, it takes them from being normative, from being something we should learn from this was God's plan to almost the opposite of that. It totally changes things. I wish I had understood that as clearly as I I do now, and I'm still learning when I first started writing, because one of the examples that I used in my first book was the story of Mary of Bethany, 
when all the men are still there in the room, there she is as a rabbinical student. That's the language that's used to describe her. The story of her seated at the feet of Rabbi Jesus is really hard to get excited about in 20th, 20th, first century United States, okay? Because women are going to school, they go to college, they go to graduate school, they become yep. professors. So, yeah, she was okay, seated so at Jesus' feet, so was everybody else. They're all seated. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. So, so she. So we talk about quiet time. We talk right. about getting too busy. But if you took the story of Mary of Bethany sitting at the feet of Rabbi Jesus into Afghanistan or mm. in Pakistan, and you showed it to Malala, who got shot for promoting education for girls, right. and you told her that story about Jesus and Mary of Bethany, she would love him. Mm. Yeah. She would love in the power of what he's doing against the backdrop of that culture is phenomenal. I mean, it it would have been a jaw dropper. Yeah, that's really I love that device of just thinking about modern day Afghanistan under the Taliban or something like that where that that kind of paints in, paints a nice picture of like you're not even making any cra- at this point you're not making any crazy claim. You're just saying if you understood the culture of the moment, this is how they would have taken it. It would blow you away. Yeah. It would blow you away. This is what I say, is when we're reading the Bible, we need to always remind ourselves that we are not reading an American book. Hmm. That the book we're reading is from the ancient Near East. It's like the Middle East today, you know, major parts of India or, or Africa where patriarchy is the reigning way of looking at things and it's ex- and it's in its extreme forms. For example, I, I talked to a, an obstetrical nurse who worked in India for a while, and she said, in India, when a little boy is born, there is an explosion of jubilation. But when a little girl is born, she said, I have to persuade she talked about one situation where she had to persuade the mother to pick up her baby girl. Oh, gosh. So that's, I mean, that's the extreme. But also what happens in many cases is if, if a, a wife cannot give birth to boys, she's the property of her in-laws and she gets abused by them because they're demanding, you know, this is this is it. You you know, and, and again, not all families in India are sure, like that, sure. but that's that's the picture of you know, the value system that patriarchy is in its ex- in its extreme or fullest form. So how did you go about um, learning all of this stuff? Like I, if I had if I was like, I want to spend a year of my life learning about patriarchy, both here and in the ancient Near East context of the biblical text, like what would I read? What would I listen to? How does one go about learning about this topic? You know, for me, 9-11 pulled back a curtain. And that's when we started to learn about life in other countries. I mean, we're Mm. very, we're very tuned into ourselves. And you know, now we have people coming, well, we've it's happened all along, but more of them now coming to our country from those countries who mm-hmm. can talk to us. Like, for example, my husband's a seminary professor, and um, we were having lunch with one of his seminary students who was um, from Tanzania. Mm. And I said to this young man, I said, so tell me, 
What is it like to be the firstborn in your family, the firstborn son? Hmm. And he, his chest puffed out, yeah. you know, he just rose up in his seat, you know, it was sort of like, whoa, turning regal on us. And he said, I am my father's confidant. He makes no decisions without me. All my siblings look to me for leadership. And he said, I will build my father's name and his estate in our community. Okay. So wow. the firstborn son is the crown prince. Right. And that's a big message in the Bible. When you when you look at, it's called primogeniture, where the firstborn son is going to inherit twice as much as his siblings, as his male siblings. You know, this is the story of Jacob's 12 sons, because it wasn't son number one who was getting all of this. It was son number 11. And it blew up the family because it was a violation of the patriarchal system. Understanding the importance of the firstborn, you know, take that into texts in the New Testament where we read that Jesus was God's one and only son, Mm. that he gave his one and only son, you know, the intensity of the sacrifice yeah, Abraham and is Isaac. Magnif- yeah. It's magnified by that patriarchal backdrop. Mm. The language that's being used there, um, or like in Galatians, where Paul is writing to a mixed audience, and he says, you are all sons. He's saying that to women. Mm. You are a son in God's family. You know, we would change that to say, you're all sons and daughters, right. you know. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying... To women, you're a son too. So it's, I mean, it's just, it it really makes the power of the text leap off the page. What happened to me was that as I started studying the stories of women in the Bible, I would see stories of men in the Bible that were men who were eclipsed or downsized, or, you know, there was somebody bigger in the story that got our attention. And these were powerful stories of gospel masculinity Mm. and it's radical and it's not about becoming weak it's about using male power and privilege to empower and bless others to create flourishing i mean you you, there's no way we're going to say okay well there's no more male power and privilege we're just going to do away with i mean it's always going to be with us But when it is used for the good of others, I don't know of much in this world that is more breathtakingly beautiful and powerful than that. This is not an anti-male discussion. It is a pro-male discussion because I think the way we talk about masculinity puts men at risk. And it creates all of these power pyramids where there's somebody at the top And it's not a safe place to be, but they're mostly men at the bottom. And being at the top means pushing others down or being over others. Yeah, I was just thinking about this the other day. In a society where men who own land or or own flocks have four or five wives, what happens to the other three or four men? Like men and women are born at roughly equal rates. And we don't think about that. Even when we think about polygamy, we actually don't think about 
the other guys? Like, what happens to the yeah. other guys? I mean, we see this a problem in China right now, right? Because of the former one child policy, there was like tremendous abortion of female babies. And, uh, you have this imbalance in, in males being born. And why did they want male sons? Patriarchy. The males were going to have a better yeah. chance of providing for the family. And, uh, you know, we can, we can cut the Chinese government a little slack. They, they did the one child policy because they were facing like rampant plague from overpopulation. And you understand that. But one thing they didn't really think about was the unintended con- consequences of a, a non skewed, yeah, population. skewed population. And there's yeah. all kinds of issues now. And that would have been the case as well in any of these polygamous patriarchal societies. So that's really interesting that you're, you're like, let's look at the other guys here. You know, like what is this exalting the image of God in them? Is, is does God have a plan for them as men? Be- because if you think he does, then it's not that God has a plan for men. Or if you think that there is no plan for those men, it's not that God has a plan for men. God has a plan for the men who happen to be in power. And then all the other men are just kind of screwed. Supporters. (laughs) Supporters of the men in power, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, the first anti-patriarchal statement in the Bible happens in Genesis 2. It's it's the creation of male and female in Genesis 2. And we've always talked about that in terms of marriage, God's creating marriage. Well, it he's creating male and female and at the only at the end of the text does it talk about the implications for marriage. For this cause, a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Under patriarchy, the wife becomes the property of her husband's family. Absolutely. So here's what happened to me. We, we lived in Oxford for four years and two of my friends there, one was a woman from Pakistan and the other was a woman from India. And both of them were smart. One of them had her PhD and all of the North American students were really looking forward to finishing. My husband was studying at Oxford and you just look forward to the finish line where you can go home (laughs) and they were dreading it. And the reason they were dreading it is that in, in England, they had all kinds of freedom and, um, you know, it was just them and their husband and their kids. But when they would go back to their home, they would come under the thumb of their in-laws and be treated like a That's child. So, interesting. so if, if I wish I had noticed that verse in that context so that I could have told them. It would have blown them away. But we don't think about it. You know, we quote it in marriage ceremonies and we don't realize that just upended a major tenet of patriarchy. So you see that as a little nugget of what God is trying to do, despite the patriarchal context, he's actually setting the stage for, and it, and it would work long term, right? I mean, now in the West, we have a dynamic of marriage that is dissimilar to the, the standard d- dynamic when that text was written. And it is more like what God says, a man will leave his family and cling to his wife. That is what I did when I married my wife. I left California. I moved to Seattle. I married her. But back then, that was like, yeah, sure, he's going to do that. Not really. They act- that didn't actually happen yeah. for thousands of years. But also, you know, his, his purpose is to build that his father's 
you know, estate. So that's where everything's going to go. So when a, when a young woman would marry, she'd, she'd leave and she'd go. So she was like a loss to her own family, although they would negotiate the marriage so that they make good connection and make good connections in the community. But, but so she was a bargaining chip, but she wasn't going to help your family, you know, build and move forward. So if she gave birth to 10 sons, it wouldn't do you a bit of good. Hmm. Um, yeah. Okay. So what to read to understand this culture, how to learn about the patriarchal culture, a book that's written by a journalist who went into the Middle East to study what was happening to women and girls is nine parts of desire. Lolita in Tehran is another one. A thousand splendid sons, is a third one. Um, one of the books that had the biggest impact on me was uh, written by Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wudunn. It's called Half the Sky, Turning Oppression into Opportunity for, for Women Globally. Um, and that is where they researched what's happening to women and girls all over the world. So it's the child marriages, honor killings, rape as a weapon of war, um, sex trafficking. Um, it's a pretty rough read. Yeah. Um, but I, in the book that I wrote and, and in part in response to that is called half the church. Right. Um, because I, as I read that, I thought, you know, well, where are we in this? You know, and one of the lines in the book was that Americans of faith should care as much about saving the lives of women in, uh, the, in the Congo as they are the unborn. And I thought, you know, that's, yeah, you know, I mean, right between of, the of eyes. Of course we should. And so then to yeah. untangle why we don't is a big project, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because in 1904, um, I have a copy of a book that was written by a, a Christian missionary woman in India, Amy Carmichael. Um, and she's especially well known by, you know, our parents' generation, you know, because she was widely read in the 20th century. And she wrote a book called Things As They Are. Mm. And it's about life in southern India. She was from uh, Ireland when she came and she came as a missionary and she never went home. She came to India and she was trying to evangelize, um, you know, going to visit people in their homes and she could not break through. She was not getting anywhere um, in the Hindu, in Hindu culture. And she started noticing what was happening to widows and what was happening to little girls in India. And she realized that people were taking their little daughters and dedicating them to the temple, which meant they would be raised as prostitutes. The, The first child she got was a seven-year-old who had her hands had been burned because she tried to escape earlier. And Amy Carmichael ended up raising hundreds of little children. I have that book and I'm thinking, so where were we in this, you know, and why did, why did Nicholas Kristoff and Cheryl Rudin write half the sky when we've already got half the sky in this book, where he's telling all the things that were going on. What happened to her was that her supporters told her to stop telling 
these awful stories. They said, we want to know, we want to know how many conversions we don't, they almost recalled her from the field, but you know, so read Amy Carmichael's work, you know, and that's something we've had for over a hundred years. I'm just like internally fuming right now. There, uh, there's a lot of threads to pull out of that. One that we don't have to talk about is there's a subplot of the way that the American Protestant church, especially has let women go be evangelists in other parts of the country or the world where no one wants to go while not letting Mm -hmm. them preach from the pulpit. That's a, that's maybe, (laughs) that's another episode, I guess. So if we think that what's going, if we acknowledge that's what's going on there is patriarchal. Okay. The, in the thing that she found, if that is based in a kind of a, ultimately toxic patriarchy, then we have to ask ourselves about the biblical text. Does the Bible teach that God's will is patriarchy, but sort of like how Paul says, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church, that it's like a soft and loving version of patriarchy? Or do we think that like slavery— no, like God just doesn't want any slavery. If God could have God's way, there'd be no slavery. And and so where do you – I mean, I think I, we know. Where do you come out on that question? And then how how do you get there to that answer? Even what you've quoted from Paul is radical if you put it against the patriarchal backdrop. I mean, imagine telling a Taliban to love his wife – as he loves his own and cares for his own body, he'd think you were nuts, (laughs) you know, to say that. It's utterly radical to say, love her like you love yourself. When Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, then for us to say the kingdom of God is a a kinder, gentler patriarchy, Mm. or it's it's a kinder, gentler capitalism, or it's a kinder, gentler um, monarchy. Right. <laughs> he said, my kingdom is not of this world. And we have to take that seriously and say, you know, he has raised the bar for us beyond what is going to make us comfortable. And it is, a, it is a life of putting the interests, this is what Paul says, you put the interests of others ahead of yourself, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And who is my neighbor? Well, Jesus drew a pretty big circle. Yeah, that's the good Samaritan the parable, right? Yeah. That's the yeah. biggest circle he probably so, could have drawn at that time. Yeah, yeah. The very person you would just you know, want to avoid at all cost, And, um, you know, so I think what, what happens when you look at the Bible, you, for, you, you know, you, you set aside your American lens and you look at it within the, within the context of patriarchy, it becomes a very radical counter-cultural bar raising <laughs> message and I'm hungry for that. You know, I want to know more. And, um, you know, I think it's it's redemptive for men. The stories, I've written a book called Maelstrom, M-A-L-E-S-T-R-O-M. And the stories of men in that book are, 
are breathtaking and they're stories we've walked past forever. You know, it's like the story of Judah and Tamar or the story of um, Joseph of Nazareth or the story of Barak and Deborah and Jael or the story of Jesus and Mary of Bethany. And they're stories where there's a whole new way of being human. There's a, there's a, a power of redemption. There's a freedom to engage what God is calling you to engage without saying, well, this isn't a man job. That's a woman job. You know, none of them are doing that. And it's, and it's all about God. It's not about, am I man enough or am I woman enough? It's about what is God calling us to do and how can I bring my full self to what he's calling us to do? And, um, you know, this whole way of thinking has utterly transformed my marriage. I, when I got married, I thought, okay, I know how we're supposed to do this. And, you know, he was in seminary and then in, in doctoral studies. And, you know, I knew that I was supposed to be the breadwinner when that was going on. But then there would come a, a cutoff. Once that was done. Yep. And, yeah, and he didn't think that way. And he said to me when we were first married, he said, you need to find out what your gifts are, what God wants you to do with your life. And he said, I'm not the answer to that question. Mm. And, you know, and he has pushed me and challenged me and supported me. And, you know, when I write a book, he's my first editor and he comes back to me and he says, you can do better than this. <laughs> you know, it's. It's um well it's what happens when you're married to a professor. Right. But I mean it has been it has utterly changed my life. And you know, when he walks in the door at night, I wanna know how his day has gone. I wanna know what challenges he faces. I wanna be a sounding board for him. I wanna be strength for him. I wanna be in the battle. I don't ever want him to think he's alone. Um, in whatever he's doing. So you guys know, I have this Patreon campaign that is ongoing. It's $5 a month. It's the way that you can support this work financially. And it includes a Facebook discussion group for patrons only. And it also includes two bonus episodes every month and the bonus episode for the second half of february is a conversation with seth roberts he is a musician from san luis obispo area california i grew up watching his bands play in the bay area in california and i was a huge fan of his band watashiwa he now plays in eager seas they used to be called lakes and uh, he is also a person of faith of christian faith and i wanted to talk with him about the music industry, the Christian music industry, how that affected him in early life, how he thinks about his teenage years compared with the way his daughters uh, are being raised as they get close to their teenage years. And we also talked about um, moving from evangelicalism to now that an Episcopal church that he and his wife and, and kids are at. And uh, it was a really fun conversation, really great. It was fun to reminisce. 
And it was also fun to uh, just get into some topics that I didn't anticipate. I also have put together a Spotify playlist for this episode. These are songs of Seth's that I think are particularly good. There's a link to that Spotify playlist in the show notes for this episode, as well as for the bonus episodes for those of you who are patrons. Here are some clips uh, of my conversation with Seth. Or when you get required from a church to like do an altar call or when they yeah. tell you like you have to put your lyrics up on the overhead or some bullshit like that. Oh my that. gosh. <laughs> I've never heard of the so lyrics on the uh, projector. That's new. Yeah. That's a new oh, one. Yeah. yeah, we had it all. And and like when, you know, when I got older and the other thing was like we started so young that like looking back on it, I it's like, what? Like, I know my parents' intentions for sure. Um but like all these other people around me, I didn't, I don't know there. And, and like, so looking back on it, there's some stuff that I'm like, yeah, that felt a little bit off or that felt like, you know, I was pretty young to be, um, I don't want to call it brainwashed in that way, but definitely like, um, very, there was, you know, there were certain circles where it was very influential on my, um, on what I, on what I think we were required to be as a band. You know, I got, I, you know, I, I got to a place where I had to, I, I got so anxious about, um, you know, trying to, to really lock down these things that I think were tied to the idea that you have to have things locked down. I remember seeing people as a kid being so confident that they had the world figured out and they had God figured out and they had it like pinned down to like evangelical Christianity, you know, and and so I think I got to a point where it was like, well, I really do care about thinking about these things. Um, but I know that I want to focus on my time thinking about these things or like exploring these ideas in a positive, not, not in like an, an anxious way or like, so I'm okay. I think I had to kind of become okay with that. I do believe like focusing on love is, is like, um, so important in life that's like what i believe is like most important is focusing on love and i and i think because of that you see you see so much um in all in so many different beliefs and ways of life and if you really look at people and try to understand humans through that perspective of just focusing on the love you know then uh yeah you can see god in all kinds of different places you know well, do you feel like – do you think there's still a tension? I mean, given in your current environment, both trying to pass on some faith to your daughters and in your church environment, do you feel that there's any tension between saying, I I practice this, but I don't buy the exclusivity claims? Do you think that if you were honest about that, that it would be harder or is – have you found a community where everyone's like, oh, Seth, totally, we agree. a different community. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't know. I, I not Seth. Oh, totally, we agree. But oh, Seth, we I love you. Hmm. <laughs> no matter what you believe. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So if that sounds interesting to you, you can go to patreon.com slash dancoke or youhavepermissionpod.com and click become a patron. There's a link to that in the show notes. 
back to my conversation with Carolyn. And when we left off, she was describing how her egalitarian marriage has really changed her life. And it was really beautiful what she said. But I had a follow-up question for her about precisely that issue. Yeah. I bet there are people so, listening to that, though, Carolyn, and going, that sounds so redemptive and loving and fair and and emotionally appealing, but I've got this text in front of me, and I don't feel like I have permission to go against this text. And this text says, you know, the husband is the head of the is the head of the household and wives submit to your husbands and ask them questions when you get back from church and cover your heads and I don't permit a, a woman to speak. And, and so, I mean, it's so beautiful that your husband basically gave you the permission to question the patriarchal norms of the text. But we, <laughs> but like for those of us who don't have a person in our lives who just sort of made that obviously clear by loving us through it, we we need a we need a hermeneutic move. We need a we need a way of reading okay. the text. And so okay. the way that I think that people who don't feel that permission would read the text is they would say, patriarchy is not a bug, it's a feature. It is the way like in terms of the the strict delineation of roles between men and women, that's a feature of God's design. And so yeah, of course these stories of women being sold to the temple, all this stuff is totally sinful and evil, that is a corruption of the plan that God had. Um, but your view is a little different. You say all patriarchy is fallen, is sinful, and it's just where we are on the continuum. It might be worse or better, but none of it is God's plan for us. How do you make that move biblically or hermeneutically in terms of the way that you read the text? So I went to Genesis 1 and 2. I said this earlier. That's all we have that's pre-fall. And I'm asking the question, as a woman, I'm asking it. So I'll talk about it from that angle. As a woman, you know, what is, what is God saying in Genesis 1 and 2 that's universal for women? That is... Um, that covers covers us from birth to death. That is indestructible, and it and and one of the things we do when we read the Genesis narrative is we tell jokes. We make jokes about it, but there are no jokes here. God is making really strong, powerful, foundational statements about His creation, and God makes three powerful statements about His daughters and His sons. In those two chapters, the first thing that he says is that he's going to create human beings in his own image and likeness. And we sort of stop there and we and we make a list of things that we observe in human beings that we also observe in God. You know, like there's love and there's intellect and there's mercy and justice and kindness and relationship. And, you know, we're it's sort of descriptive. But it's visionary and it's it, it comes with a mission because it means that our first and most important responsibility is to know the God who created us to reflect him and to be his representatives in the world. So 
it means that as human beings, we have the highest possible identity that is imaginable. And it beats all these other social systems to pieces because we are created to be like God. And it comes with responsibility to be his eyes and his ears and his hands and to look after things in creation. And it involves the whole creation, not just church, but work and farming and science and music and art and all the different things that human beings have done to explore and cultivate the earth's resources. So that's the first thing. We are his image bearers and you are always God's image bearer. Somebody can make you a slave and beat you or, you know, sell you for sex. They are violating God's image, but you are still God's image bearer. It's what you are at birth. The first chapter in Genesis is about the vertical relationship. And it means that before God created a single human being, he threw out the welcome mat for a relationship with himself. We could not have that without the invitation. But that's what he's doing. And he's saying, you won't know who you are or how you're to live in this world if you don't have a relationship with the God who created you. So that's the first thing. And the second thing, when you turn to Genesis 2, it's about the horizontal relationship. When God looks at the man and says it's not good for him to be alone, and this is what he needs, he's not saying there's something wrong with the man. He creates the man at the climax of his creative activity. So we're looking at a masterpiece. He's just finished naming the animals. That's the beginning of science. So, you know, God isn't saying, whoops, you know, we need to fix something here. He's teaching us about relationships with one another. And he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will create what they say is a helper suitable for him. So Hebrew words are azer connecto. The word connecto means she's whoever he's creating is his match. But the word azer is the word that I really have picked up and studied. Um, it's a word that's used 21 times in the Old Testament as a noun. It's used, it's used twice in Genesis 2 for the woman. It's used three times for nations that Israel is calling on for military aid. And the remaining 16 times it's used for God as the helper of his wow. people. And yeah, so that is a far cry I, from the way that, you know, complementarians tend to interpret that verse in terms of uh, they, they interpret that verse in light of husband or wives submit to your husbands and they go, see, she's yeah. his helpmate. They go, see it. Of course, this matches with up, yeah. up with Paul. And you're saying, well, if you look at the Hebrew word and the con in, in the Hebrew Bible, it it's not used that way at all. It's like. It's like it's f-ing armies. It's like God as the helper of the Israelites. Well, it gets better. Okay. It actually gets better. So when I when I first started looking at this, they already knew that they had done the inventory. And so what they did was they upgraded helper to strong helper. Hmm. And then the debate continued where, you know, now we have to talk about, well, what do we mean by strong And how strong is she? Well, what I did was I went and looked up all those verses. 
and a pattern began to emerge. You know, obviously, you know, three, we want armies to come. We are overpowered by the, yeah. the, the ones who are assaulting us. So we want, send your army. When it's used for God, in every single context, there is military language, that God is our shield and defense He's better than chariots and horses. He stands sentry watch over his people. I looked up all those 16 verses every single time there was military language. So then I go back to creation and I think, you know, this is, we talk about the Garden of Eden as paradise. But when you look closely at Eden, it's a war zone. There's an enemy getting ready to attack. It's the most, the biggest defeat that the human race has suffered And um, God has commanded the man to guard the garden, the same language that's used for the angel guarding the garden with a sword after they're evicted. Human beings are created to rule and subdue, which means there's going to be resistance to what they do. And I concluded from that, and I'm sticking to it, (laughs) that the Azer is a warrior, that she is called to bring her full self to the mission that God entrusts to them, that she is to be strength at his side for the battle that they must engage, that that it's not, that it, wouldn't it be nice for men to let women participate in things, but that men need women with them in the battle. Mm-hmm. And they need women to bring all that they have to the battle. And you see this in stories, in narratives, all through the Bible, where, you know, when a woman sets foot on the pages of Scripture, it's a big deal in that culture. Just you to know, be mentioned patriarchy is, at all. There you go. There you go. So, okay, so I that's my license plate. My P- Pennsylvania license plate is Azer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I want that on my backside. I want to know every day I get up, that that's what I'm called to be. I'm called to be that in every situation, in every relationship. It doesn't mean that I'm called to be militant or toxic. It means that I'm called to be good news, that I that I represent the living God, and that that means I have good news when I come. And, um, and, it, and it means I owe him everything. That for me to think it's okay to hold back and expect somebody else to take care of things is for me to be unfaithful. You know, God doesn't want half of me. He wants all of me. And, you know, as a woman, the, the, the things we're talking about are stewardship issues. It's not just stewardship issue for me. It's a stewardship issue for the church. When I stand before Jesus, I'd rather be explaining why I did too much than why I did too little. I mean, this stuff is so uh, inspiring. Perhaps it's my analytical brain, but I just keep – I need to keep going back to like how then are people going to read the text because – they're going to they're going to send this episode to their pastor. Their pastor's going to go, "Man, you know, that Carolyn James, she is really James, you got Well, no, she's she's that's really beautiful. Um, but you know, it's in God's word and we we don't just get to pick and choose. We don't just get to only like Genesis 1 and 2 and ignore Paul. So we we 
for people who are going to get that either in their own internal pushback or from another person in their life, um, we need a way to think about this. And, and, and my understanding from, from reading and listening to some of your stuff is that you – this is why you emphasize so much that patriarchy is the backdrop. It is the cultural backdrop for the text. So I have this question I wrote for you. Well, how do we explain such a beautiful image of the woman as the warrior alongside the man? How do we explain that even showing up in a in a patriarchal world? And well, then we would answer, that's God. I mean, that's inspiration of scripture, right? That's, that is the Christ-like nature of God shining through thousands of years before Christ shows up. But then if the, if the question is, so then what do I do with the text? Uh, tell me if this is right. When you see patriarchy in the text, you you go, okay, you know what? We're going to control for that. We know that's going to be there because that is the unquestioned backdrop of their world. But we're going to look for the nuggets and the we're going to, you know, sort of scour the ground for the shine of the diamond amongst the sand or the dirt. That's like, ah, that's where God is leading us in the midst of this thing. Is that about right? You know, when you read Paul, you're reading somebody else's mail. Sure. You're you're reading letters that are written to people in that culture. You know, when we read Paul's words in Ephesians, when he's writing about husbands and wives and fathers and children and masters and slaves. You know, we sort of assume that he's got this little marriage conference going on where there are these cute little couples sitting there holding hands and he's teaching them, this is the way Christian marriage looks. But what you actually have is you have a lot of women whose husbands aren't there who, if they assert their freedom in Christ in their marriage, they're going to get hurt. If you go over to Afghanistan or Pakistan or some of these really Saudi Arabia and you preach the egalitarian message and these women decide they don't have to wear that burqa Mm -hmm. anymore, they're free in Christ, you're going to get people, you're going to get women killed. You know, when Paul, when Peter says, to submit yourself to your, your husband, it's it, he's protecting mm. people, you know. And there, I think there's some really um, hard things in in these texts, but they had hard. There were hard situations being faced. I mean, they had polygamy, you know. So husbands love your wives three and four, <laughs> you know. It's it's sort of like okay, he's taking it into the first century. How do we take it into the 21st century, you know, where where husbands and wives in the first century, there was a there was a differential between husbands and wives in terms of age and education and power. You know, it wasn't like you marry your college sweetheart. There was child marriage going on because there as soon as a young girl is is um, reaches puberty, she's marriageable because she can start producing And so, you know, but the husband would be older and educated and have a voice in the community. So you're looking at a very different situation Mm -hmm. than you look at when you, you know, 
marry someone who is who has the same education that you've got and has the same earning powers that you have and so you know for us to back up and try to implement you know what are we that's what they did in the during you know the civil war time was they looked at that text and said you know it's okay to have slaves right it's and it's, it's not okay is ought distinction and this is a big this is a big question in theology and textual stuff. It's also a question in philosophy and moral philosophy and ethics, right? Because something is a certain way does not necessarily mean it ought to be that way. And when we're looking at these texts, we have to make the difficult choice of what is what is in the text, so to speak, because of course it's in the text, because there was no other option in that time and place. And then what is in there because this is what God would have for us universally at all times. And, the, and but if you if you keep reading in Ephesians and Paul is addressing a mixed audience, the language that he uses in chapter 6 is also addressing women to put on the whole armor right. of God, you know, to stand in the battle, you know, so it's it's there's military language that's used for women. One of the things that I think is really interesting to ask when we ask the when we look at the question of male female relationships and marriage relationships is what does jesus want of his bride what does he want of us you know because when we talk about the bride of christ we're talking about men and women and and what does jesus ask of us is he going to take care of us and we don't have to worry about things or does he put on our shoulders heavy burdens for his mission in the world and are we all called to that? And, and you know, I wrestle with this. I'll, I'll tell you what changed everything for me. I mean, Genesis 1 and 2 did, and I haven't even talked about how God, when he created male and female and spread creation in front of them and told them to rule and subdue, that he blessed them. And I call that the blessed alliance, that the way God means for his world to work is for his sons and daughters to serve him together and not you know, okay, we'll let you help, but it's that we need you. And the, and the book in the Bible that turned my world upside down was the book of Ruth. Yeah. And I did not, I didn't see that coming And And Naomi has lost both her sons and she's a widow and she's past childbearing years. You count her sons to, to, to measure what she's worth. She's a zero. And Ruth has had 10 years of marriage and has not even produced a daughter. So she's barren, and now she's a widow. So there's zeros in the culture. They're worth nothing. And yet God is raising them up. Naomi is a female Job, and God will speak to her through Ruth. And Ruth is initiating the action in the story, and Boaz is responding to her. And when I heard the book of Ruth understood in that deeper yeah. way, instead of a Cinderella story, that Ruth was the leader in the story and Boaz is using all of his male power and privilege to empower her to take care of Naomi. It was over mm. for me. So I thought, okay, if God can use a woman who in today's world would be an undocumented Arab in her country, in, in Bethlehem. A woman who is ranked as a zero 
to advance his purposes for the world, then why not me? And what excuse do I have? I listened to an episode with you. I believe it was on Seminary Dropout. Was that where you talked about your your book uh, that yeah. you wrote on on Ruth? I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. I would highly recommend people listen to that whole episode because that is a fan. It's a fantastic um, look at the text that you give. Um, but with yeah. our remaining time, I want to close with a kind of a lightning round here where I'm going to bring up a bunch of arguments that complementarians give from the text, as well as a bunch of texts in scripture. Now, one thing that I didn't anticipate when I wrote this list, I thought that you and I were going to have a similar hermeneutic, a similar way of reading scripture. And I, what I'm picking up on is actually you have a more conservative um, approach to scripture than I have. And so I think it might be interesting if we differ on some of these, I might just throw out my view uh, briefly, because I think it's fine that we, we don't have to agree on all of it. And but even more so, I, I think it's kind of interesting that you're getting to this position, if I'm right, you're getting to this position without making some of the more liberal, critical moves with the text that I have made in my own journey. Hmm. Um, and so I just I think that's worth noting, uh, because we have a wide swath of, of listeners to this show who some of them are going to be to your right and some of them are to my left and there'll be people in between us. <laughs> but so let, let's just get into it. This lightning round, um, uh, having gotten like a nice backdrop, it'd just be cool to hear you respond to a bunch of these individuals. So I want to start with a couple arguments, common arguments for complementarianism, um, which I defined in the introduction to the episode. So you can go back if you don't remember what that is. Here's the, here's an argument. Think of Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the 12 sons of Jacob as the 12 tribes of Israel heads, Moses, Joshua, David, the male priestly order, the prophets to Israel and Judah, etc. Clearly, God purposely called out and intended to work through male leadership in Israel. That's the argument. Carolyn, what's your response to that? I think we have to read the narratives too, you know, when, when the, because there are women, I've already talked about Ruth, who is at the opposite end of yeah. the spectrum. And yet, you know, you could say the book of Ruth is where God orchestrated a rescue to go into Jordan and bring out this zero. And he was going to move things forward on her actions. You, know, you you have to take the whole of scripture. You can't just, I mean, I, I love the stories of the men you've named, but there are women in those stories too. And, you know, we don't give them the credit that they're due. Um, like the story of Tamar is one that is a whole nother yeah. discussion. Esther, Rahab. But, I, mean, I mean, the whole book of Esther is a female protagonist. Yeah. Deborah, yeah. Deborah is phenomenal. And we've just, we've genderized that, that narrative where we're saying, well, Barak was a wimp and she was, you know, sort of God's default, you know, cause the men weren't doing their mm. job. Well, Barak is, is incredible. And so is she. Yeah. And, you know, I'd so, add, I guess to this one, anyway. yeah, just, just to add to this, like, of course, all those main leaders are men in that time and place with the cultural assumptions they had. It's sort of like asking how come the best novels of the 
colonial and slavery era United States didn't all feature black protagonists. Like Nobody would have even been able yeah, to conceive yeah. of doing that. But then you still have these breakout right. moments in the Old Testament. The diamonds, and then you yeah. have Miriam, who was a, you know, a prophetess and a leader in Israel. We don't give her credit for that. You have Huldah. Here's one that I heard in a sermon in uh, my wife and I's church of 10 years that we are, are just now leaving, um, which is hard. We, we love that church. But this was one of the, the sadder moments. Um, this great this great sermon about how how beautiful God's plan is for men and women. But then the final argument was, at the end of the day, Jesus chose 12 disciples and all of them were male. He could have chose female disciples and he didn't. And we should then take from that, uh, that because Jesus did not violate that patriarchal norm, that Jesus, in fact, thinks that that patriarchal norm should stand universally for the history of the church. What's your response to that? I mean, you can't deny that he chose 12 men. Um, But I would also add that there were a lot of women he chose as well. You know, that Mary and Martha and Mary Magdalene and the women who traveled with Jesus and supported his ministry, um, you know, and you have even one of the interesting stories in the Bible is the Apostle Paul's partnership with the women of Philippi. That's the first church in in uh, Europe. And when he writes the letter to the Philippian church, he says, I thank God every time I remember you from the first day until now. And the first day, it was all women. Hmm. And, you know, so it's, I think that, you know, even though the patriarchal culture, cultural norms are, are part of the story, that there's this shift going on and that there is this movement going on. And, you know, when, when you go to the, the end of scripture and you read the final scene in revelation it's chapter 19 verses seven and eight, where it's the presentation of the bride. And it says that she is attired in a, in a pure in pure white linen and that the threads of that dress are made up of her righteous acts of justice. So it's, it's a, that so is she's not, so here's that's the not the same as saying she remained a virgin, you know, or something like that. It's very different language. Well, or the, you know, that she, she's okay. She's the Azer right. to Jesus. Wow. And she involves, she involves men and women and she's been in the battle for Jesus. She has embraced his mission and she's given heart and soul and strength and mind to what he wants to do in this world. And I think that's the recovery of the vision that's in Genesis 1 and 2. And so when I look at all these verses that you've got on this list, I want to look at them under the umbrella of that vision. I don't, you know, they're not going to redefine Genesis 1 Mm. and 2. But God hasn't given up on his vision, and that's why Jesus has come. Um, His kingdom is not of this world, but we have a picture of what he had in mind in the beginning in those first two chapters. And at the end, there is a marriage that redefines how we look at marriage, because Jesus doesn't want a passive bride. And I think submission is is redefined in 
in Philippians 2, and Paul himself does it when he says that you are called to be like Jesus in pouring yourself out for others, pouring yourself out, you know, and so you're not called, you know, I just have always felt like as a woman, especially if I got married, that I was called to to turn things down and shut things off so that my husband could shine. And, you know, he doesn't need that. And he wants me to bring all of myself to our relationship and to the challenges that God puts before us. So, you know, I don't think, I think Jesus wants a lot of his bride. Uh, we're just going to keep going through this lightning round. I'm going to, we'll stick with the Old Testament and then we'll eventually get to the New Testament. Uh, here's another argument. And by the way, these are arguments I found on a very fairly worded, like arguments for complementarianism, arguments for egalitarianism uh, blog post. Adam's naming of Eve indicates, in an Old Testament cultural context, Adam's right of authority over the one whom he named. And interestingly, Adam named his wife twice, first when she was formed from his flesh, and second after they had both sinned, indicating that his rightful authority over her continued after sin had come. What do you think of that one, Carolyn? Well, I also noticed that Hagar named God. Hmm. And nobody talks about that, <laughs> you know, okay, is she assuming authority over God or, but his naming of Eve as the mother of all creation is a reduction of her from what she's, how she's described in the creation narrative, how God describes so you her were just, yeah. as his image yeah. bearer. So, you know, I mean, I think that's really, yeah, the naming, the naming convention, but you have women who are naming their sons, Leah named her sons, you know, and nobody says, well, she's assuming authority over her sons because she's, you know, I think, okay, if you're going to make something out of that, let's just keep following it through Be more consistent, and, you know, see where that leads. If you go to Genesis and your goal is to establish the authority of a man over his wife, then you've broken up what God says in Mm. Genesis one, when he gives them both the same identity and calling. It's the same. He's not saying the men are to rule and subdue and the women are to be fruitful and multiply. If we think of those strictly in biological ways, I think it's a call to the gospel to be fruitful and multiply image bearers of the living God, but not, but it's a call to both of us. It's, I just think there's an agenda when we come to the text and say, you know, how can we make, how can we establish the man over the woman, there's there's no indication in, in how God creates male and female that that he's that he's creating a hierarchy. Not not before the that's what patriarchy not before the fall does. you're saying there's no indication. Yeah. After the after the fall, what's gonna happen is the man is gonna rule over the woman. He's gonna be yep. stronger and he's and he's gonna rule over but what also you have is that you you have men ruling over other men. You have the murder of Abel. Yeah. You know, the very first thing that happens, it's it's about primogeniture, it's about who's the best. It's all yeah. there. So last one, and this is the biggie that people quote from uh the garden uh, the garden expulsion, Genesis three sixteen, to the woman, he said, Yahweh, 
I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. This is this is a hard one because earlier we were saying, well, is doesn't necessarily mean ought, but this sounds like God is cursing women and saying it's going to be shitty for you because of what you did. So how do you get around that? But it, you know, it's, it's, it's conflict is going to be in the relationship. Mm -hmm. And I mean, things have broken apart in the fall and these are the consequences of, of what's going to happen. And it's the beginning. That's where patriarchy begins with. He shall rule over you. That is contrary to Genesis one. So, so God's creation vision is upended in the fall. And instead of, you know, this partnership, now we have all kinds of strife and competition and hierarchy that puts some down and some up and you're not safe if you're up. Even Napoleon fell, you know, it's just. Yeah. Well, so this is maybe where our, our biblical hermeneutic, I think I have a, a simpler answer here, which is like, of course, God never said that. <laughs> just, just like God didn't say a bunch of the stuff that I'm going to list as we continue going through the Old Testament. For me, I just think that's just obviously not, God would never intend that. So I mean, it's, it's okay if we disagree. I could never get Zondervan to put out my books. You can. And so we, we should notice oh. that there's going to be a difference. Um, okay. Going through the Old Testament. Uh, this one, I, I have found this a few places and I find it really interesting in the 10 commandments, Exodus 20, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The wife is right there in the middle of the possessions of your male neighbor. Um, what do you, what do you do with that? Yeah. Well, I think it's awful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I think this, that it's, that he's, he's addressing the patriarchal structure. And I mean, she, she doesn't have the power to do yeah. any of that. Um, it's, and, you know, you've got to remember that the overarching commandments to the law of God is the love of God with heart and soul and strength and mind and to love your neighbor right. as yourself. And that we as 21st century Christians have those two things. And, and it's not something you're going to check off and say, okay, I've done that. What else should I do? When you look at the spirit of what is being, what we're being called to, it's never ending. It's, ever expanding. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe this was the issue at the time for this people, but it's, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't define what, what those laws call us to be. Right. And, and Jesus himself sort of uh, reworks the entire Torah to be those two commandments, love God and love your neighbor. I, I think I would agree with you. I would just phrase it as, uh, do not covet is excellent. That's that's the whole point of the commandment. And the fact that the wife is included next to the slaves and oxes and donkeys and house. That, but that's the part of that's the patriarchal societal structure that the writer of Exodus just could not imagine not being 
part of the world. They just, they, it was too early for them to get past that. Um, okay. I'm quoting from this guy, Tom Stark's is God a moral compromiser. It's a response to Paul Copen's is God a moral monster book. So this is Stark's, um, paraphrasing of some of the Levitical law quote to sleep with a virgin maiden was considered a crime, not against the maiden, but against the father, the rape of a married or betrothed woman resulted in an execution while the rape of a non betrothed virgin was punished by forcing the rapist to marry his victim with a monetary payment to be made to the father. This is because a non-virgin female would be difficult to sell to a husband. So forcing the rapist to marry his victim was his punishment, and that secured the victim's father his right of payment, end quote. Uh, there's nothing here about what the daughter wants. The, the rape victim daughter, um, her her sort of honor, her repayment is just literally nowhere in the text. It is entirely a transaction between the male rapist and the male father of of the of the okay, daughter. Yeah. Um, what do you what do you do with a passage like this? Yeah, I I don't know what to do with that. I mean, that's one that's one of the biggies to look at. I mean, but even for me, you know, I'm currently reading through Ezekiel, and you know, some of the things that that. God tells Ezekiel in there are horrifying to me, you know, and I think, you know, I think the, that it's good for us to struggle with the Bible. I don't think there are easy answers to all of this. Um, you know, it's the, or that it's a matter of saying, okay, well, I'm throwing out that part of the Bible, but I'm going to keep this other stuff. You know, I, I think the Bible is, is, it's important for us to struggle with it. It's important for us to understand the culture in which it was written. This is not a 21st century American book. And when we bring an American 21st century lens to it, we don't understand Hebrew poetry. We don't understand metaphors in the, in the ancient patriarchal world. You know, we are as far removed from the world of the Bible as you can possibly get in today's world. And we need enormous humility before we say awful things about God, mm-hmm. you know. Oh, I'm not you know saying I'm anything saying? awful about that God. He think, that he thinks, <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. But, if, I mean, but I mean, somebody who would defend, oh, defend. on the opposite side of this. Yeah, forcing I mean, marriage to a yeah. rapist. You know, it's, I mean, that'll send me right over the right. ledge. Um, and I, and I, so I think we've, we've got more work to do. I think we need to be fearless in asking questions of the text. I want to hang on to that vision in the yeah. beginning and govern and scrutinize every text on the basis of that and on the basis of Jesus and on the basis of that vision at the end where the bride is celebrated for the for her engagement in the battle for Jesus. I think I don't want to quibble with you about our Old Testament hermeneutic because I find your positive <laughs> account so so beautiful and inspiring and um so there there's a few more of these things that I just think are disgusting in the Old Testament and and my answer for all of them is just yeah God never said that. That's not what God ever wanted. Uh that is a human author 
doing their best with what God was inspiring them to do. And we should look for those diamonds in the sand um, and cling to those. Uh, but if I go through four, three or four more of these, we're just going to come to the – I think we'll come to the same conclusion. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, for me, for me, it has really been helpful to have the to have the vision to see that, and then also to see patriarchy as a as a hermeneutical tool, and you know, to to exercise some humility in looking at the text as a modern twenty first century Western American, and you know, to know that 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 that. Yeah, puts me yeah, at a disadvantage. I, just, I understand that move, and I think a lot of problems are solved by divorcing ourselves from our own cultural context. But I, I think you still run into issues with uh, supposedly God pronouncing things that are obviously morally evil, and and so you just you have to have some way of saying either God did not pronounce those things, or uh, he did, and and God wanted something different then than God wants now, and you you get into some kind of a basically a uh, what's that word called um dispensational answer that god's morality changed over time or changes based on where mm-hmm. his, god's plan is for god's people and uh i just find the dispensational answer far less convincing than the uh this is, has errors in it answer but that's just me i'm going to throw it a yeah. I'll throw out a couple things from the New Testament real quick. You don't have to respond to all of them, whichever one you'd like to respond to. So there's there's, uh, (laughs) 1 Corinthians, the woman has the symbol of authority on her head because she's the glory of man, because she originated from man, and because she was created for the man's sake. That's quoted from a website. 1 Timothy 2, let a woman learn in silence with full submission. No woman should teach or have authority over a man. Titus, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. And then finally, 1 Corinthians, wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. You wanna, do you want to respond to any of those or as a batch or what? <laughs> You know, yeah, I mean, there's been a, a lot of people have sure. worked over these yeah. texts. And, um, you know, it, it's, if you want a really good yeah. resource. I'll, I'll put it in, I'll put on, it in the notes. On yeah. Paul. Okay. There's a, there's a book. Paul You'll see it here. Gender. It's Paul and okay. Gender. And the scholar is Cynthia Long Westfall. And she has taken the entire Pauline corpus and, you know, it's reclaiming the apostles' vision for men and women in Christ. But she, it's very helpful what she has done. And, um, you know, these are the texts that the debate in the church have yeah. centered on. And, you know, it, there's, there's just, that's why I've chosen to go to a different yeah. place in the text is as I think as carrying more authority than something that was written to a situation in Corinth, a troubled church. Like she does, when she talks about the head coverings, she says that the head coverings were worn by women of status and that if you were a slave or a prostitute, you couldn't wear a head covering. And that Paul is neutralizing the class structure when he says all of the women should wear head coverings. 
which I thought was a really, I mean, she goes into it in far more detail, but it's an interesting thing to look at all of Paul's writings and talk about these subjects. And so I think that's, I mean, I usually defer to her because, you know, my, my work, I've worked, done a lot of work in the narratives and, and, and a, and a ton of work in Genesis one and two. So they sort of go to Paul and then they redefine everything else in the stories. And, you know, it's, it's, it's not an honest reading of yeah, the text. And of course, we're not going to, we won't solve this today. I think it's worth noting that you have a way of reading the text that is emphasizing the grand narrative of scripture, emphasizing the narrative role that the fall plays. I have a reading of the text that is probably more liberal and, is is much more willing to say, yeah, they were totally wrong about these things. They're both options, and there are really great scholars mm-hmm. doing work with both those and other options. And so um, yeah. I'll include that book that you mentioned in the show notes. And uh, man, Carolyn, thank you so much for your time. What a great conversation. You're welcome. Thank you. I like what's coming from your end. It's well, very careful. You you won't be able to publish with Zondervan anymore if you get too convinced by me. Uh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, um, no, no. I mean, I have friends who who think exactly yeah, like what you're yeah. what you're saying, or or are and are writing, um, and they're asking those hard questions. And I think we need to ask those hard questions. I don't think I think those are fair yeah, questions yeah. to ask because it you know it's hard to put to have continuity and what we understand from the word of God with some of the pieces that are in there. And at the very least, it's meant for us to struggle with, you know, how we put this all together. It's a good struggle. Well, thank you so much for your time. That was a long conversation. I, uh, but I'm glad we got to, I'm glad we got (laughs) to go long because there was a lot to cover and um, man, just thank you for your work. I just think so many people are going to really love being able to listen to this. Thank you guys for listening. There is a link in the show notes to Carolyn's website, which has links to her books and other things. You can join the Patreon for two bonus episodes every month. Also gives you access to the patron only Facebook group. And remember that these episodes are meant to be resources. So please share them. Friends, pastors, parents, loved ones. I'd love to know how are shaping up and if this has been in any way helpful and email me i want to know what you think is this helpful how could it be better what do you want to hear me talk with people about who do you want me to interview um that could be for regular episodes or the patron episodes so shoot me an email you have permission podcast at gmail.com and we will see you guys next week thank you so much If you're listening to this podcast, you must recognize the value of asking questions. At Aramco, our questions help us engineer a better future. How can today's resources fuel our shared tomorrow? How can we deliver energy to a world that can't stop? How can we deliver one of the fuels of the future? How can we sow curiosity to harvest ingenuity? To learn more about how innovation drives us forward, visit aramco.com slash powered by how.